Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Former Cache Valley resident Denise Turner has released a new book, Worthy is a Memoir of Loss and the Search for Acceptance. Raised in a Mormon household, she strives to find her place in the church and longs to be worthy of her mother's love. When her mother dies in a suspicious house fire, Turner is forced to face the stories she's inherited. And contemplating the price of worthiness, she grapples with the mystery of her mother's death, seeking to understand her mother's battle with chronic pain. Denise Turner will be signing copies of her book on Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. at Bill and Carol Strong's house. That's 947 Sumac Drive in Logan. Turner is a specialist in life story. She received her Ph.D. from University of Nevada, Reno, teaches at Black Hills State University, lives in Spearfish, South Dakota, and she is in uh, Cache Valley for events related to her book. She joins me in studio for the program today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What's it like being back in Cache Valley? It's it's strange because it's not strange. I yeah. don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Cache Valley has always been home to me. No matter where I bounce around, um, Cache Valley, the mountains, all of that feels like home. You grew up in Tree Mountain, was it? Right. Yeah. And then uh, migrated to uh, Providence at one point. Right. We moved around early on in our marriage, but yeah. did we, we landed in, in Providence. And your mother ended up and your parents ended up in Roy. Yes. And that's where she died, I think, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, father worked for Thiokol. It's mm-hmm. uh, very familiar to people in northern Utah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yet a lot of lots going on, which, which is true in most of our lives, isn't it? It's these, the dramas that happen behind, you know, in the privacy of the, the family house. Right. Yes. We all looking respectable on the outside right. and not so respectable on the inside, right? And you're a specialist in life story. Yes. So what was it like to write your own memoir? Well, one of the things I studied during my graduate work um, was writing and healing. I was fascinated with the idea that you could write something down and get closure or clarity or some kind of wisdom about that. And, you know, hopefully I thought, well, maybe you could even feel better when that process was done. And I was studying that in a theoretical way. Um, And so when my mother died in the house fire, I thought, well, here's your chance. Does the does this work to write about painful events and and if so, what does the process feel like? Mm. Uh, did it did it work? Did it help? Uh, it did. In fact, um, somebody asked me once, like, how much of the book was therapy for me, and I would say all of it. Um, one of the things that I also found when you write about traumatic life events is is that it does not immediately make you feel better and, in fact, can make you feel much worse. Mm. So if anyone out there listening was like, oh, yes, I should write about something um, traumatic so that, you know, I can process it um, or gain some insight from that, you know, part of that process is really facing your feelings, and that can be hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you please uh, read the, the first two paragraphs of, of the book? This is a, the opening chapter called Separations. Oh, I would be happy to. My mother's heart weighs 370 grams. Her brain, 129 grams. She's 166 centimeters tall and weighs 75 kilograms. Her hair is 10 centimeters long. Her uterus and ovaries are gone. There is a mental stent in her left anterior descending coronary artery. Her liver is 1,230 grams. Her kidneys, 90 grams apiece. Spleen, 100 grams. 
From the autopsy, I even know that the thickness of the subcutaneous layer of fat in her abdominal wall is 1.8 centimeters. All of her organs have been carefully removed, weighed, analyzed, and, I assume, returned to their original locations. The language in the report does the same work as the scalpel, skull chisel, tooth forceps, and rib cutters. It severs the human being from the body, reduces the body, body to the sum of its parts. My mother's organs are not her organs. They are the scalp, the right and left lungs, the hair, the skin, the larynx filled with sooty debris. The words carve her into manageable pieces, organize her into internal and external features. I notice that if I try to substitute the word your in the report, your skin, your lips, your abdomen, your hands, your breasts, your cause of death. The document gets dangerous. Too close, too heavy. The words fill my stomach and chest, turning up something like panic. Your turns the body on the metal gurney into my mother. Hmm. So uh, one point here is you've structured this memoir as like a mystery, almost like a mystery novel. You're, you're trying to find out the mystery of your mother's death, uh, complete with cliffhangers at the end of the end of chapters. Well, it felt like a mystery to me um, because I received, you know, so many pieces of her life afterward in, in, in different installments. And so, you know, I'd get her journals in one installment. And then and it was this as if my father was a little bit worried to tell me the whole story. Um, some of those pieces came along very much later. I had a whole version of the book written and agented in New York. Um, by the time my father um, found a note on the old um, on the old computer, he was about to to um, throw out um, a six page document to me from my mother that she'd typed weeks before she died, detailing this horrific inner life that um, basically um, this demon that she felt had come to haunt her, and so I had to rewrite the whole book <laughs> with mm. that information. Mm. And I guess it also highlights that you certainly felt this way, and I think a lot of us feel this way, that you came to find out or maybe feel that you didn't really know your mother. Um, Really, that's very, very true. And one of the um, tragedies about her death was as she got sicker, um, I just ended up with this feeling that she didn't love me. And so putting her, the pieces of her back together, including her journals and, and um, you know, and, and her artifacts and making inferences about that um, reminded me that she did, in fact, love me. She had a different way of showing love in the same way her, her parents did. Um, but that was uh, probably one of the great insights and most healing things for me was that I think my mother mm-hmm. did, in fact, love me. You would, as some passion in the book, you would get mad when people say, oh, you're so much like your mother. Oh, right. At, at the beginning of the book, I'm furious because by then I've come to see her as this hopeless narcissist who just is, is only obsessed with her things and her jewelry. And, you know, I don't relate to her at all. And so when people come up to me during the funeral trying to say the right thing, mm-hmm. as we do at funerals, you know, I just find myself so put out with them that mm-hmm. they would conflate me with with her. And, you know, you know, in retrospect, I'm deeply gratified that I'm like her. But but then, no. Mm-hmm. 
the separation, you know, in the first first chapter is called separations. There's a separation from your family, mm-hmm. and and you're you're putting some distance between between you and your your family. There are reasons we'll get into. Also, a separation from the church you grew up in. And that's I think both senses of the word worthy kind of apply to church and apply to you your relationship with your mother and trying to be, I don't know, worthy of her love or? Oh, yes. Um, worthiness is is so big. Um, and it wasn't just that I wasn't feeling worthy enough for my mother to notice me. I, it seemed like I would keep jumping higher and higher for her to, you know, I'd get a commercial pilot's license and a PhD. And, you know, I saw myself as doing all these just outstanding things, you know, I was jumping up and down and eventually my mother would notice. And by then what I didn't notice is she was grappling with so much, so many health issues um, that she, and so much pain really, that it was hard for her to see anything else. Um, Because as we know, pain is exhausting. Um, and, And I also knew that she was a very very strong member of the LDS church. And, and I wanted to make her happy there, too, and knew I, knew I wasn't a very good member of the church. And, and so I always felt like I was failing her on one level or another. Um, I wonder if I could have you read another passage from sure. the book. This is page 16. And you talk about this very interesting word, inheritance, which can have so many different meanings, of course. We're, we're bound up, connected to our families, whether we want to or to be right. or not. And you have you come from a very interesting family. We'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, right. But we all inherit something, and and I think and that's it's always a mixed bag. I think, um, and so um, I'm not sure where I want me to spot. Um, I'll start here and skip a little. Okay. Um, if you look closely. You will notice that the things you inherit suggest specific values. Take the sheep camp that resides in our barn. Across between a covered wagon and a camper, the wagon had sheltered my grandpa Chernus, an impoverished Greek immigrant. It marked his change in fortune, rescued him from the copper smelter and railroad. It symbolized frugality and independence and a certain braving of elements. It bequeathed the romance of the early West, the promise of prosperity in the new world. It spoke of my grandfather's character, sparing and practical and gruff. What you got, what you saw was what you got. The rubber wheels weren't pretty. They were more functional than the wooden wheels. The story that seeps through its oak bows, thin mattress, and tiny cook stove is one of rugged self-sufficiency, working hard and working alone, the hard-won promise of board and bread. Trickier to spot than the things you inherit are the ideas you inherit, ideas that determine what is normal, what is right, what is wrong, like coffee. Whether it is a morning beverage or a mortal sin all depends on the context. And this context won't feel like a context at all, but reality. The sheer invisibility of an idea of strangeness is how you know you own it completely. Witness my confusion when I first started visiting non-LDS churches. For example, those crazy Episcopals swinging balls of incense and wearing crosses. Dudes strutting around in dresses, ha ha, because Mormonism was so normal. It did not matter how quirky my own inherited beliefs were or if they were incompatible with a hundred other beliefs because they were so powerfully true. 
It's perspective, isn't it? It's, Absolutely. It's what you're raised with, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. You want to say that uh, in Tremonton, where, where you grew up, um, you were Mormon or you weren't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like the seasons. It's summer or it's winter. It's, right. it's right. the, the lines are very clear cut. Mm-hmm. You make a funny, uh, a funny reference. Being Jack Mormon in Utah is sort of like being a jackalope. Of course, a lot of people in Utah will know what a jackalope is, but but what what is it? Right. A, a hybrid nuisance. Right. It's not one thing. It's not another thing. It's 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 this mixture. Like, um, I it's. it's I'm I'm missing the word right now. It's just one of these not normal phenomena that just ain't right, right? Right, right. A, a jackrabbit, and then they put uh, through taxidermy little tiny horns, animal an, 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 antelope horns, and right? then, then try to try to persuade outsiders mm-hmm. that that's a real animal, right? That's, 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 <laughs> right. that's that you've that you've uh, killed and put on the wall. Mm-hmm. So you were an insider, absolutely, and and leaving the church, you became an outsider. Right. Um, I started asking a lot of questions as a young mother, um, and and I had just felt myself um, feeling as if I more and more that that either I that something was wrong with me to put it simply um, that I I couldn't quite buy into some of the ideas, and I felt like that made me a bad person. Um, and so for a long time, I just tried to ignore it all. I'm like, well, one day, one day I'm going to wise up and I'll go back and it will be okay because something is wrong with me. And, and then it just through time and experience, I felt like, well, maybe something's not wrong with me. Maybe it's not a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. This is a sticking point with your mother, I believe. She. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it. It broke her heart that, um, you know, for me, I was I was struggling so hard with with so many um, um, pr- sort of principles of the church. One of them, just for example, was um, uh, President Benson's to the mothers in Zion. You know, that came out um, when I was, you know, trying to hold down a job as a full time middle school teacher, and my children were were a baby and a toddler. And I was exhausted all the time and feeling guilty and feeling like I was a terrible mother um, when that came out. That and, 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 of course, people who know that proclamation know that it's all about women who should go home. Um, you shouldn't curtail having more children. And at that point, I was like, I cannot have any more children. I'm afraid I'm not taking care of the ones I have well enough. And I was just on a nonstop guilt trip about being good enough. I mean, to the point that there's a scene in the in the book where I'm, I'm driving around in a suicidal rage. I don't even realize I am, but I want to die. And it's mm. it's a horrible thing to think that you're such a bad person, that that the people you love best would be better off without you because you're such a failure, and um, and so I had to distance myself from things that made me feel like that. And for my mother. Um, I think part of that resonated because I, I remember her feeling she would get mad every Mother's Day because of the sanctimonious mother, you know, um, service. Um, but at the same time, um, she was deeply and devoutly LDS and was deeply concerned for me. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to have uh, Denise Turner read another couple of passages from the book. It's uh, getting uh, 
good reviews. That must be gratifying. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, the her memoir. Uh, Worthy is the the title, and uh, many of the scenes take place in uh, northern Utah, where we're talking to you from right now. Denise Turner is back in Cache Valley for events surrounding her book, and uh, she'll be reading from the book, uh, signing copies of the book at an event at Bill and Carol Strong's house, 947 Sumac Drive in Logan. She uh, teaches at... uh, Black Hills State University lives in Spearfish, South Dakota, and is in Logan for those events. We're happy to have her in studio today. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. This is Brian Earle of Utah Public Radio. Summer is upon us, and we're celebrating the evening of June 9th when a generous Logan restaurant donates 15% of its sales to UPR, and I hope you'll join us. Dine on your own between 5 and 9 p.m., or meet and eat with me and UPR staff from 6 to 8. Order from the menu or select one of four special entrees that include vegetable or shrimp fettuccine alfredo, grilled salmon, or New York strip steak. That's Tuesday evening, June 9th. Information is at upr.org or call 435-797-9507. Thanks. Hi, this is Bill McLaughlin inviting you to help us check out those Bohemians. We're listening to all sorts of music from Bohemia, from Moravia, from Slovakia. Wonderful music from composers from the Czech lands. Check out those Bohemians this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring the two gentlemen of Verona, in addition to seminars, tours, and more as part of the festival experience. Information at bard.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Have with me in studio Denise Turner, who uh, is a former Cache Valley resident. In fact, grew up in Tree Mountain. Uh, and uh, she's out with a new memoir. It's called Worthy. Right. And uh, details of uh, life and her family. And, and the strain of the, the running strain of the book is the mystery over her mother's death. Uh, so she's forced to, uh, Denise Turner is forced to face stories she's inherited and uh, grappling with the mystery of her mother's death, seeking to understand her mother's battle with uh, chronic pain. Um, and uh, she is uh, going to be at a reading and book signing, and everyone is welcome. It's at uh, Bill and Carol Strong's house, 947 Sumac Drive in uh, Logan. Usually these are at uh, businesses and such, so I, I'm, <laughs> it's kind of kind of strange to be giving out Bill and Carol Strong's uh, address. I feel like maybe I shouldn't be doing it, but uh, but they want everybody to come, yes, right? Yes, they and do. So we, we absolutely would love people to show up. It is uh, not a private event, right? It's a public events. So everyone, everyone, we hope everyone will come. Bill and Carol Strong's house, nine forty seven Sumac Drive in Logan is the signing, and I should, uh, I think I've been neglecting to say when it is. It's on Saturday from 3 to 5, right. Saturday 3 to 5 in the afternoon. hope everyone will uh, will show up. Uh, so we've been mentioning that uh, a sticking point between you and your mother um, is uh, the fact that you left the church. Of course, when we say the church in capital letters in Utah, right. we mean the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Uh, she's still a devout member. Um but you're grappling in the book with uh, issues of expectations. 
and worthiness and shame mm-hmm. and perfection, which, which I think resonates with uh, anyone in a strong religious faith, certainly does with, with I think, some members of the, of the LDS Church, and I think especially women. I Perhaps. think so. And 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 I part of this, you know, trying to be, you know, the the perfect mom is is part of it. Um but some of the um the strongest reactions I've had um to the book um with readers in South Dakota who really they the 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 LDS question to them is sort of like, "Oh, okay, we don't know that culture." Um but what resonates to, with them um, is this feeling like like you are invisible or that you're not good enough for the people you love most? Um, or and, and secondarily, the religious themes where, you know, I've had Catholics come up to me and say, hey, you know, we have that same thing <laughs> where where, you know, we have stuff that that we kind of fight a little bit. Um, and so th- I think there's a lot of ways that people can connect. But I think women in particular, uh, you know, my heart sends this to women um, because and, and I don't think that, um, you know, the LDS culture um, is particularly terrible in this respect. I think that just culturally, everybody has a different brand of what a woman should be. And so for women especially, um, I think it's valuable to look at all those pressures, um, you know, um, to look right, you know, the issue of body shaming, um, you know, online and in person. Um, I think that, you know, I don't want to discount um pressures on men because those are there and you see those at work in the book too um but but women to to do everything right and to look right and be have lots of children and still be thin and and make wonderful food and still be thin and and hold down you know um uh, jobs and church jobs or and community service projects and and to do them all flawlessly, and and not and not to ever let anyone see you sweat, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Which apparently was happening to some extent in your mother's life. She she put on a happy face. Apparently, this this letter that you got, that your father thankfully found. Oh. In the you know the the wreckage of the of the burnt house, is one indication of that. Oh yeah, her demons um, were definitely. Um, f- um, metaphorical in that she wanted to do so well too she wanted to be um for instance if she if she made a leper blankets for for relief society she would make like 500 of them <laughs> she just couldn't do anything small she just had to do it um so big and so well um but her her demons you know with this letter that i got um after after i'd written the book I realized that her demons were literal, that she, that she was feeling physical sensations. She was having hallucinations. She was hearing voices. And so her demons that were pressuring her um, were so terrifying and real to her um, that just my, after I got all these papers and looked at them, I, just my heart broke open mm-hmm. for her, um, that, that her demons were so big and real. And I think stemmed... Um, I'm, you know, my struggles were a little bit more with the church, but hers, I think, really stemmed from really, really wanting to please a father who was, 
who was just he was so involved in his own life, he didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Th- those scars can run deep, can't they? And, and and can be lifelong. Tell me about her father. He's as we as you heard in the passage that Denise Turner read. He's a stereotypical Western American hero. He comes impoverished, builds up a fortune. Oh, he's he's the man. He's the poster child for the American dream. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you looked at him, he was, really wasn't a big figure. He was a, he was, a, you know, a, a small, muscly man, um, a Greek immigrant. Um, he was Greek Orthodox. Never never joined the LDS Church. Um, but he was just this tower of power because he was this success story. And, and, and because he was this success story, um, you know, everybody really wanted to please him. But he was concerned with sheep and sharing and the bottom line and, and feeding his kids. And, 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 you know, it sounds kind of gruff and rough and, and, um, not, particular, and not particularly likable, but you know, what I found out about him is he starved as a kid um, over in Greece. He, you know, my grandma pulled me aside and said, well, you know, when he was seven years old, you know, he'd sheep herd and he'd, you know, he'd pull down the ewes and suck on them for food. That's all he got. And so before he died, the one last bit of tenderness for my mother was he pulled her aside and, 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 and just said, don't let anybody starve, Helen. Don't let anybody starve. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so his children felt unloved, but what he was trying to do was give them food. Mm-hmm. You know, it mm-hmm. was his values were, you know, take care of everybody at all costs, for all their physical needs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here comes children who are like, well, we have emotional needs, right? Right. Which he didn't know how to not at all to to uh, to, to satisfy. Mm-hmm. It becomes I don't know it, it. Ordinary lives become Shakespearean in in a, in a way, mm-hmm. and we we just can't communicate these things. Right, right. He was never able to do that satisfactorily to his children through his life. I guess no, he tried. I, right before he died, he he kind of pulled people to him and and had these kind of odd little things, you know, to say. In so far as he could, he was trying to say, "I care," mm. and and um, but and and that was wonderful. But yeah. that's the, what I think the most he could do. There, there's a couple scenes in the book uh, re- relating to a piece of jewelry, which he he apparently handed his wife some money and said, "I guess go get yourself something." And so she went and got this very nice piece of jewelry. And you're right. You can't decide whether that's a sign of neglect or love. Uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because to him, you know, you know, I'm giving you money to go buy something nice. Pick it out. I don't know what you want, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it's a gesture of love, but it's also it's an odd sort of gesture of neglect. That well, I'm not I'm not going to go to the effort of looking at that for that for you, but you know. Run along now. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this gets handed down, right? But, right, right. And I, I've been fortunate to inherit it. But, you know, y- you do. You look at these objects and say, well, you know, what are what are the stories embedded in those mm-hmm. and the values that are embedded in those? And we all get that. Yeah. Multifaceted. In a, in oh, absolutely. Metaphorical sense. Mm-hmm. So how did uh, tell me a little bit more about how this manifests itself in your, in your, in your mother's life. And this is compounded by the fact she has near constant physical pain. Um, how the um, the handing down of objects, well, kind or, of, or her or, relationship with her father. Uh, I really, 
the relationship with her father, I think, um, troubled her her whole life, haunted her that she was never quite sure he was proud of her. Um, and so she was she was also trying to build her own legacy that was big and bold and noticeable and worthy. Um, and And she never really got the straight up message from him, I am proud of you. And, and so one of the things that I make sure is in the book is she did do that for me. I wasn't expecting it because I'd felt ignored for years and I was in the middle of a Ph.D. And, um, and, and, she, and she just called out of the blue, which she never did. And she said, I just feel like I need to tell you this because it's true and it's important for me to say that um, – I'm proud of you. I'm proud of all of my kids for all of the things that you and that they have accomplished and the people who they are. But I just want to say that I'm proud of you. And I tried to deflect that because I had I had become like super self-conscious about any of that. Um, and I'm like, well, mom, you know that a lot of my drive and ambition comes from you. And she just cut me off. Nope, this isn't about me. It's about you. And I'm proud of you. And and, and, you know, she left me that gift. She died about a month later. Hmm. So she did leave me a gift. It must have been a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one of, one of those treasured moments. Mm-hmm. Which could have, and, and it happens a lot, you know, could have happened that she kept that to her death, but she did. She mm-hmm. gave you that gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was, she was, in a sense, trying to be worthy of her father's love. Is that what was Absolutely. Happening? Absolutely. She was chasing his approval and love. Well, I'm chasing her approval and love. And, you know, she had gone to a therapist in particular who had told her that, well, you know, I can put you in touch with people in the spirit world. And so I can put you in touch with your father and he can tell you that he loves you. And, you know, all of my like skeptical sirens went off and I'm like, really, mom, that's so cuckoo for Cocoa Pops. (laughs) But for her, she really needed that, whether it was a ritual Whatever that was comprised of, she needed that, and I understand that need. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask you. So, does, does this repeat? You're you're trying to be worthy of your mother's love as you as you go along. Is that something that's that played out? Oh, me trying to be worthy of my mom's love. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm 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 doing every extreme thing she would have ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, writing the book I think is is you know a gift to her, and also in an indirect way, a way of saying, well, I hope this is good enough then, mm-hmm. Mom. I right. hope this is something that that I can give that does justice to your life, that honors both of us, and that and that actually does some connection work between um, the two of us. I'm trying to find the passage here. You, um, I think I uh, copied it over here. But you say that, and this uh, taught me again that the parts of our lives which resonate with our children may be different from what we think will resonate. And you talk about uh, there, there's an event she's going to go to. Your grandfather's receiving Sheep Herder of the Year, I think, or mm-hmm. Sheepman of the Year. And uh, she's in a, like a strapless gown or, you know, her hair done up. She she looks stunning. And uh, and and you comment that you, you admire certain parts of her which she, she probably wouldn't think that you would admire oh right um she was such a fascinating person because you know she was very devoutly lds and then every now and then she would 
she would do something like crazy, like she just ditches the garments and wears this dress from her high school days. It's just no straps, just a string of peacock feathers. And I was just, you know, I just breathless at how beautiful she was in that. It was the first time I'd ever seen her back. And, you know, that she, now and then she would just do things like that and go out on the town. <laughs> I found this passage, just a sentence here. Um, I find myself longing for the mother I knew as a teenager, the free-thinking physician assistant who simultaneously worried and inspired me. Exactly. That brings her to life, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. Yeah. Uh, you have a funny line about uh, when she was wearing that outfit, there was nothing between her and God but those feathers. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I wonder if I have you read another passage from the book. This also talks about, there's a theme in the book about inheritance, what we inherit. And so this is page uh, 190, I believe. This comes right after the scene that we've just talked about, where uh, your mother calls you up and tells you that she's proud of you mm-hmm. for who you are and what you've, uh, what you've accomplished. Then we go into, into this scene, uh, uh, which has to do with an inheritance, physical inheritance from your grandfather. Mm-hmm. And there's fighting over it, as often happens. Grandfather's a rich man, there's, uh, so I, I assume it's a, a sizable inheritance. So, uh, if you'd right, read the passage. Right, right. And, and um, in this scene, um, my, my father is um, asking me to sort of jump in and take sides in, in one of the, the family um, disagreements about who should have land where on on grandpa's land and i just and i just say i I don't want to have anything to do with it and and so it that's the first time my father and i fight in the book and it's quite frankly the first and only time we fought as human beings and so there's this terrible um phone call where basically he he says i thought you'd be more like your mother braver she would not have backed down or given up she would have tried to make it fair and and I hang up and in a rage, and then I call him back, and and I can't. I'm not even sensible. I find that I'm just screaming. It's it's this horrible version of myself I don't even recognize. Um, and so, so here's just is that the part of the scene? Yeah. You like, <laughs> so I redialed my father's number. So darkly outraged, I could hardly see the numbers. When I heard him pick up, a voice I barely recognized is mind screamed at him tearing across the space between us there was no calling the words back no controlling them i unleashed all the rage i'd ever suppressed for my mother for for the mother i lost for the family i despised i must have told him to go to hell i don't know my words were insensible awful aimed to cut him to the bone raw with strain my voice finally broke and when it did i heard him pleading oh kid i can't tell what you're saying i forced myself to be clear When my voice emerged, it had the same low growl my mother's used to have just before she snapped. Fighting is the only thing that family's ever been able to do, I said. I've already lost one parent to them, and you will not shame me with my mother. In that moment of rage, I glimpsed the demon that haunted my mother, and he was timeless and cruel and composed of infinite bitterness. And you go on to your father... Finally, after both of you cooled down, you you learned that your father believes that this is what your grandfather would have wanted. He he would have wanted you to right. to accept this piece of him, or what it, this inheritance is what he worked his whole life to 
right and it's so important that that my dad like we do as parents we don't do this stuff to trouble our kids (laughs) we do this stuff because we want to give them the best things we have we want them to be the best people that they can be and so we we keep talking about um you know what he's really after and and um and he said well why don't you want part of this legacy why don't you want the cabin i built why don't you want this and and basically i said um um and he said if i made a beautiful table and spent my life carving it would you not want that and i said maybe the table's not what matters dad but the character of the person who built it in that case it doesn't matter what happens to the table or who gets it because the real gift is not an artifact but a way of living shaking i willed myself to finish if your children are secure, Dad, it's because you gave us love, not land. Mm-hmm. And that resonates. It's it's the character. It's the emotions. It's the mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but why why didn't you want the inheritance? Oh, it was so fraught. Um, in there, there's um, when my mother was getting sicker, and I was having a harder and a harder time connecting and feeling like she didn't love me. Um, and, and I resented her illness. I resented she was sick all the time. Um, she had said, um, I gave my health for the partnership, for all of her family land and, and, and property and all of that. And I was so angry by that. I'm like, really? I could have had a mom? I would rather have a mom. <laughs> so I think that, that was where the real split with me and the family was, is like, mm-hmm. yeah, mom, you gave, you gave your time and energy to those people. I will not. And they're fine people. <laughs> you know, I want to go on record saying they're, they're good people. But for me, it was too raw to know that she felt like she gave up her life for those people. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, I would rather... <laughs> I would rather you stuck around right. <laughs> selfishly. Uh, another theme that resonates here and is connected into the, the inheritance you, and you refusing it is is this separation. Right? And I'm not sure, you know, and I'm, that, that had to be painful. You and your mother, I guess, I don't know if you argued about it, but you're separating yourself from the church that she, she loved. And uh, you didn't really separate yourself by distance, I guess, and you know, until after you went to South Dakota after she died, I believe, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know whether that might have been something your father was processing as as well. This is a this is a separation. Oh, you know, that's a really really good question um, because my father has been so supportive, um, and he actually is somebody I can talk to um, in in really sort of philosophical terms. Um, about you know church precepts and how they interact with other ideas and other religions. My father's been a really interesting sort of free-spirited person. And so one of the great delights for me is that even though he's a very, very devout LDS person, that he can sit down and talk about humanism with me. He can talk about Buddhism. He, can <laughs> he, he is a curious soul. Um, and a, and a very loving parent. And so I would say there's lots and lots of separations in the book, um, but the great gift is I've not ever felt separated from my father. Mm-hmm. He, is, he has been so willing to cross over to me, if nothing else. And uh, It occurs to me that uh, for many families, maybe most families, maybe all families, mm-hmm. 
it's an ongoing drama of bend but don't break and, <laughs> and coexist <laughs> without without total separation right and and um my sister and brothers we all are you know is we're like any family and that we all you know you grow up you all get distinct personalities and and what's great is when you can realize you have very distinct personalities you know you have distinct differences and yet you're able to be in the same room together and you realize that you know all of that stuff doesn't matter that you're all on the same team mm. and i've been really lucky with that um, I worried a lot when I left the church that um, my family would not want to be with me. Um, the book talks about an affair I have um, in midway through our marriage. And after that, I was I was worried that like my sister wouldn't want to let her kids come over to our house because heaven knows I would be some sort of terrible influence. And And what I would say about that is my family just rallied. I felt loved and feel loved by them. And so I, I feel really lucky that way. Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Denise uh, Turner, and uh, she is a former Cache Valley resident. And many of the scenes in her book take place in northern Utah. She's back in Logan for events uh, surrounding her book, which is just out. It's called Worthy. It's out from University of Nevada Press. It's a memoir. And uh, it it reads like a mystery. She's uh, trying to trying to find out the mystery of her mother's death under suspicious circumstances. She dies in a fire uh, with a lot of other issues that we've talked about: uh, worthiness and uh, shame and separation and inheritance. Um, it's getting good reviews, and the uh, the reading and book signing is uh, coming up on Saturday. That's from three to five in the afternoon at Bill and Carol Strong's house, 947 Sumac Drive in Logan, and everyone is invited. So, Denise Turner, I'm I'm wondering uh, what the experience of physical separation did, if anything, for the book, for your thoughts about family. Your family went out to Spearfish, South Dakota. That's where you still, still are. Um, well, that's been really recent, um, and so I, um, I felt really supported in that. Um, the biggest separation um, is in the book, and that's when my mother's still alive, and um, my husband and I finished college at Utah State and and moved to Washington D.C., mm-hmm. where he takes his first job, and that was a really um, traumatic separation for me because I. I was a real homebody, and I, I, you know, I love Sunday dinner at home, and and you know now I'm in this place, you know, McLean, Virginia, where it's made of money and power, and I just did not get the dis- discourses, um, and so for that, um, more than any other time in my life, I really felt like I needed a mother. You know, I had our first two, our children there, um, they were growing up in a dormitory on a at a girls' school campus. And I would, I think I called my mom probably other, every other night. <laughs> I think she was just like, she'd like send me books like, here, if you don't know if the child should have a pill or not, there's a book. I think she was like exhausted. <laughs> but but yes, those, those physical separations were hard for me too. And I felt myself always wanting to come back to Utah in those days. And you were able to go back and live for a bit with your, with your mother. 
Yes. Right. You couldn't find housing. There was there's this this great moment. You know, sometimes in our lives, some of the crappy stuff like opens the door for something really special to occur. And what happened is we were struggling with our marriage out in Virginia. And and so, you know, I said, well, let's we'll take a breather. I've got a job um, in Logan. I just um, had been offered a job teaching at Mount Logan Middle School. And so I'm like, I'm going to take the babies and go and, and see how you feel. And there was nowhere to there, I, the college students were back. There was no place to live in Logan at the time, and so I ended up back in the house in Tremont and living with my mother. And you know, my dad was working long hours at Thicol then, and so there was it was sort of this odd little gift where we were just flung together, her and me and the babies, and and it was one of those last times that I really felt close to her. And, and in fact, it was her advice that helped me sort of bring our marriage back around at that time. Oh, oh interesting. Um, I wonder if I could have you read, um, this is uh, page 206, I believe. And you're, uh, you're working through the mystery, and at this point you're imagining the last day of your mother's life. Of course, oh, this, this right. is, you have to imagine it because you don't know. Right. You've pieced things together through her, her uh, documents that you found and, and journals, anything you can find, the scraps of paper, Right, my office just looks like looks like a I don't know a library threw up in there, um, but um, by then I've I've found the note that was found um, at her death um, that nobody could figure out if it was really a suicide note. That note's in there. Um, a lot of other little notes that I'm that are very strange, um, and so I'm surrounded by all of these notes. And I'm imagining what her last day would be like. Um, And um, so this is just a scene of me thinking about what all those notes might mean. Cradling the last note in my hands, I picture my mother in all her complexity, the woman who left for work in wild pattern nylons and drew blood in a black leather skirt, the woman who, a year before she died, had thrown herself into a skanking circle to show her enthusiasm for Benjamin's, that's my son, newly formed ska band. Despite her demons, despite her compression fractures, failing organs, and crepe paper skin, she kicked up white stockinged feet in peach orthodox san- <laughs> orthotics sandals, fearlessly bobbing between teenage boys in backward hats, secondhand sports coats, and sunglasses, behind teenage girls in fluorescent tank tops and studded black belts. Amid bandanas, spiked hair, and bare midriffs, she danced. Clad in cream slacks, her skin glistening under a sequin floral print sweater, she dared me to get off the sidelines. I felt the familiar twinge of embarrassment. Dear God, Mom, no, and panicked for her welfare. Surely she would die if she fell. Then I held my breath for the two of us and dove into the careening circle, breathing hard to stay at pace, elbow to elbow with my mother. Ben must have been watching from the stage, head nodding to the offbeat, flanked by brass players in striped socks and suspenders. Lana, my father, laughed near the door. Part of the circle, Arthur kicked and spun, elbows to opposing knees, and in that moment, we were a family. Sitting in my office, I let the memory wash over me, filling the silence with gratitude. How much of my audaciousness had been a byproduct of my mother's? I think about the bins and files and documents, the resilience she found in her pain, her ambition, and mine. Closing my eyes, I focus on the only thing that matters, trying to make one thought as crystalline as I can, 
sending it out to my mother across space and time. I release you of conditions. It's the closest thing to a prayer I've uttered in 10 years. It's no grand gesture, but it feels right somehow. I do not feel the heavens open. I do not feel a wild outpouring of grief. I do not feel her respond from the spirit world. Instead, I feel strangely unencumbered, as if I had spoken the words to myself and for one moment believed them. Beautiful. That's uh, Denise Turner reading from her memoir, Worthy. And from the opening, you're studying the autopsy. Mm -hmm. By the way, your brother didn't want you to do, right? Let's leave it alone, he says. Yeah, Yeah, it's dark. Which is a reaction that a lot Mm -hmm. of us would have. You dove headlong into, you know, trying to unravel the mystery, trying to discover uh, your mother. Just have about 30 seconds left. Uh, What's what's been the result then? What's what's the end result? You you dove in, you wrote the memoir. Right. Um, Yeah, a lot of dark places. I think the end result is I think it's worth treading some dark places. I'm in order to, and if you can learn to face, I think, those dark places, um, you can understand them better, and you can shine light into those dark places, Hmm. is what I would say. Well, it's a beautiful book. It's getting great reviews. Worthy is the uh, title of the book. Denise uh, Turner is the author. And uh, she's back in Logan for um, an event which you're invited to. That's at Bill and Carol Strong's house, 947 Sumac Drive in Logan. That's on Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. Denise Turner, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Pleasure. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next time on Living on Earth, Pennywise and Pound Foolish. Critics say cutting federal funds for the railroads is costing us a lot more in the end. We get the best bang for our buck by putting our dollars into increasing rail than building that next highway. Rail is a way of increasing energy efficiency. Making the case for rail. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan featuring seasonal local and organic foods. Open for breakfast 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. and lunch 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Sunday brunch 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Menu information available at CafeIbis.com. Utah commentator Gina Wigwar. I belong to a wonderful, cozy supper club with 14 other women. That number is small, so we can all squeeze into each other's living or dining room. We meet every other Thursday evening in someone's home, and the hostess is responsible for the full meal. Guest diners are only expected to bring their beverage of choice. The club has been going on for years, and because I've been a member for only the last eight, I'm still considered somewhat of a newcomer by Cache Valley Gentry. This means I've had to dig around at times to learn some of the club's history. For instance, according to an ancient rule, no hostess can go postal Julia Child style. This means she has to stick to her culinary basic basics. A hearty meal starting with a salad or soup and a main and side dish, period. No woven seagrass baskets filled with handmade egg rolls wrapped in Tongan seaweed. No exotic shrimp dipped in melted Irish butter. No fancy five-layer cakes. No French truffles. No imported fagua. No chili and sea bass caught yesterday or wild salmon flown in from Ketchikan. And no tiramisu using Pavarotti's diet recipe.
When I was explained this rule, I rubbed my hands together in glee and jumped at the invitation to join these smart, time-saving, and business-like chefs. This simple, plain cooking approach was right up my alley. Alas, I realized immediately during my very first welcoming meal that this sacred rule had been filed in the archival garbage disposal and had not resurfaced during the last 35 years. Not only was the rule dispensed with, but its very premise seemed to have been lost in the midst of time. Instead of a can of Sam's Club peanuts plunked on the coffee table, I faced plates of appetizers, tiny mozzarella balls atop organic wheat crackers, slender slices of juicy cantaloupe wrapped in prosciutto, pink locks surrounded by capers, red onions, and home-churned cream cheese. Then came the soup, not the Campbell's chicken noodle I would have served, but a French onion delight topped with crusty breadcrumbs and melted cheese served in bone-white china cups. Then the salad, a fresh spinach leaf quinoa combo topped with walnut oil and balsamic. I thought this was the end, but it wasn't. There was the main dish, a succulent coquavin feast, tender chicken breasts marinated in a 1997 Sonoma Cabernet, accompanied by organically grown home haricot vert seeped with garlic butter, small red potatoes with basils and shallots, and a fresh-baked French bread out of James Beard's cookbook. Whew! Again, I thought this had to be it. Wrong. There was a dessert. Not a small cup of frozen yogurt, but a smashing creme brulee served with double-height millefruits pastry. I was having serious doubts about belonging to this group of women. Not that I wasn't a good cook, but a spread like this? Except for maybe USU's president and his wife or the dean of science and her husband, I'd never put on a supper like this. But oddly, as I said, I've been a member of my club for eight years and counting. I thought I'd be kicked out immediately after my first culinary attempt, but it actually appears that everyone in the club likes my menus. My cooking returns them to those days of yesteryear, providing all guests with a kind of normal 1950s cooking skills standard. This includes those old-time Happy Meals, iceberg lettuce, tomato, and cucumber salad with bottled ranch, Campbell's mushroom soup, meatloaf with ketchup, Idaho mashed potatoes, and a Betty Crocker cake. And my glamorous hors d'oeuvres? A big Smith's plastic platter of cut carrots and celery, also with bottled ranch. This is Gina Wickwar.